Weather today in the ground. I love you so badly. I could... They're solid plastic, so don't settle for imitation. But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. <laughs> This is Yuki Misiro, and this is the best of an Alan Smithy podcast. You give us 80 minutes and we'll give you 80 minutes of words. Where is the limit in the imagination? Where our greatest creations meet our greatest fears? Who will go beyond that limit? If it is Eric Stoltz, will you be afraid? Will you be very afraid? From the 7th of February 2014, it's a double feature of David Cronenberg's 1986, The Fly, and Chris Wallace's 1989 sequel, The Fly 2. Hi everyone, welcome to an Alan Smithy podcast. My name is Matt and my blog is cinemachine.blogspot.com. And my name is Andrew and my blog is thestopup.com. And welcome to uh, one of several final episodes for this uh, podcast experience. Um, we're This is, I believe, number 96 or 97. And we're going to call it quits at uh, episode 100. So you lucky people, we're still with you for a few more of these. And in this uh, episode, we're going to be talking about 1986's <laughs> The Fly and the 1989 much-forgotten sequel, The Fly 2. Um, so you hadn't seen uh, The Fly, right? I had not seen The Fly. I, um, I'd i meant to. Um, and the when you said that the second one was forgotten, they did both have double-disc special editions. Um, yeah, I remember when they both like came out <laughs> yeah. simul- simultaneously on DVD, yeah. And... Um, <laughs> But no, as a as a kid, I sort of oh. had seen the original Fly. Like I think I'd seen it on TV a lot. I had the like I had a I had an old monster movie poster book, and that was in there. And I never got around to seeing the the Cronenberg uh, one. The Cronenberg one because it's like at the time when it came out, I was too young. And then by the time I was old enough to see it, I'd sort of forgotten about it. Um, And so it's one of those movies that sort of existed in my imagination based on the advertising. I think I've talked about this somewhere in the last 96 episodes of this podcast about Alien, where, you know, you get this idea of what Alien's going to be like from the, the poster and from the VHS cover at the time. And then The Fly had that awesome cover where... Yeah, with the uh, yeah, and the human arm and the insect leg coming out of it. Yeah, and so I never got around to it, and I don't. We've had it on the list for a while too, and so it was really cool to finally get to it because it's nothing like what I expected. Okay, well, I've never seen the 1958 Vincent Price The Fly. I mean, I've. I think I've seen the most famous moment from it right. when the wife 
takes the cover off her husband's head and it's a big fly head and she screams and then you see from the fly's perspective uh, a myriad of uh, multiplied screaming wives looking back at him um oh and of course you know the end help me help me with the the human head on the tiny little fly and then vincent price drops a rock on it to put it out of its misery i think that's how it goes so it's like yeah i I, much like you with the Cronenberg version, I sort of know the greatest hits version of the original. But what were you expecting from the Cronenberg version exactly? Uh, More than three characters. Oh, okay. Yeah, fair enough. Um, It's it's quite the intimate little uh, character drama. Of course. So it's like I saw Scanners (laughs) as a kid. I saw Scanners Uh. as a kid. Okay, uh, we're done. We maybe, can't. We well, can't. 14, we can probably because I saw Scanner, Scanner Two, and Scanner Three. It's got to stop. You're supposed to be Scanner Cop. I, I I had given up on the Scanner franchise by Scanner Cop. Um, okay. And so I'd seen that, and I saw that. Yeah. I think even though, you know, for a 14 year old who didn't know anything about David Cronenberg, I guess I didn't didn't occur to me that he he was not in any way, shape, or form responsible for Two and Three. So I never. But I blamed Red Dragon or Scanner. Yeah. And everyone back. I tried watching Naked Lunch when I was like, I don't know, probably before that. I probably tried watching, well, maybe around the same time. And I, Naked Lunch is a very weird movie. And, yeah. But I've come, it's not very. Oh, I'm sorry. Go on. I, but I came to Cronenberg with um, <clears throat> History of Violence, which is his, of course, his comeback, and nothing like. Yes. Um, and uh, I. What, and not really we'll, a genre we'll figure piece, out what version of Manhunter we're going to watch, of, too. And the fly, then, we'll talk about. Now, now, now I get that. that. But it'll be cool. I think that is that going to be our first ever not Michael Mann movie the on the podcast? Gimmick. It's how yeah, we Yeah, and our first ever story. Brett Ratner movie. Um, I think we would have done a lot with the more fly, of by now. Um, it's not just that it's so a very yeah. intimate piece. It's that. This this movie was incredibly popular. I, I remember how popular this no, movie was. I, I you remember, know, I like, think he my liked the book and he was looking like for something to fly again. Do flashy. Like, it was incredibly it? popular for a very long period of time. Like this movie, the the fly and aliens were these huge yeah. gi- huge giant yeah. crossovers. Yeah. So I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, and that's and that's something that I kind of I I'm hoping you have a theory on it because it's like they both came out in 86. They were both summer movies. They were both put out by 20th Century Fox and um they both have really strong women protagonists. That's why? <laughs> okay. Um, I actually not to get You know, too far I actually ahead, think I, we might after, get some uh, I watched um, The Fly with my wife. Attention and for when this I got one. Done, just be- we were talking about it, and she, I said I didn't think it was that scary, and she said she disagreed. And I was like, "Well, oh yeah, because it's about like some dude knocking you up, and it's going to be a, <laughs> and then he tries to eat you, and then he wants to morph with you, and then he wants to, and it's so it's, yeah, you know, you're going to, ha- and you're going to have his mutant baby, <laughs> and so yeah, and I mean it's like a very he's, freaky, he's not going to let he's not going to let you have an abortion. It's going to vomit acid on the abortionist. <laughs> and so I think that's why they were so popular is because um, they both sort of appealed to uh, female moviegoers who are, of course, uh, more important for the sustained box office versus the big opening day. Yeah. I think that's maybe, why. maybe it was just like a perfect storm, too, of like, I mean – 
you know, the 80s was really a decade when the horror genre went mainstream, but it just needed that little little nudge, that little tipping point. And I mean, more more so Ripley and Sigourney Weaver and Aliens, uh, but de- definitely this movie is, you know, like a horror movie for couples. <laughs> I mean, something that you know your 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 boyfriend loves horror movies, but this is one that you could go see with him, right? So I think I think that's a lot of what it is, and then um, yeah. So you've seen it? Are you? Yeah, yeah. I well, I'd seen. Yeah, I I don't remember when I first saw it. Probably like in high school on video, and um, I've always liked it. I mean, it's really hard not to like. Um, I think I've only. Well, all right. I'll just I'll just you know confess this right off the bat the ending is one of the few movie endings that makes me well up every time i see it and um i don't get that off of like dr zhivago or anything i get it off of the fly um because how can you not feel bad when gina davis is just like the whole ending of this movie is just gina davis bawling for like five minutes as uh as she has to kill mutant jeff goldblum and it's such uh, a beautifully shot sequence too yeah i think the, and the music really is yeah. stirring to howard shore um no, I, I still I still hum the themes to this movie. They're just incredibly memorable and and powerful, and uh, and they kind of they kind of do that balance back and forth between being like sort of light and lyrical, and then you know strings of doom. I think the first few notes that you hear are like the last few notes of uh, Madame Butterfly as a little in joke in there, and then actually there was a. Cronenberg did direct a, an opera of The Fly, like a stage play yeah, version of that. it. Yeah, it didn't tour nationally or anything. It's not like Book of Mormon. It's not coming. It didn't go <laughs> go anywhere. It's just like at, you know Los Angeles and New York, if that. Probably just Los Angeles. But Howard Shore did the music for that too. So I, I don't think there's been an official soundtrack release. Anyways, um, yeah, no, the music and Gina Davis's acting is really strong. And then also the ending always always uh you know gets me and is really powerful because like you said there's only three characters i mean the whole movie turns on gina davis and jeff goldblum's relationship and it's like one of the most memorable movie relationships between two characters um you know i don't want to say ever that's a little hyperbolic but it's really good. I mean, none none of the movie would work if you didn't uh, if you didn't care about these two people, and yeah. and uh, they were a couple at the time. Um, the only other movie I could think of, and it doesn't really spend as much time on it, but it kind of makes you realize what you're missing is um, that is, that is uh, where the two leads were in a relationship at the time. Um, Michael Keaton and Michelle Pfeiffer during the making of Batman Returns were dating. So sometimes that really works for creating the uh, the on screen the on screen chemistry if it's happening off screen. Yeah, and I mean in this one, because it is really for the first thirty minutes maybe, they're just sitting around talking like it's they have to mm. be really good together because it's just Yeah there's nothing it's a- going on other than them. It's a, it's an hour and a half, and yeah, the fir- the 
the accident with the teleporter and the fly inside doesn't happen until about a half an hour in. And before that, um, well, I love how the movie sort of like starts where a lot of other movies would take like 10 minutes to get to where like it's just Jeff Goldblum talking to Gina Davis and saying like, hey, come over to my apartment. You know, I want to show something. And she's like, yeah, right, mister. I've heard that line before. And he's like, no, really, I, I invented a teleportation machine. Oh, OK. And we're off and, ru- and we're off and running in just a few minutes there. This movie doesn't waste any time. Yeah. And one of the things I, I had been reading was that Cronenberg, um, what is it? Charles Edward Pogue is credited, but Cronenberg got to change everything. And then um, he, he wanted to keep Pogue's credit because he's like, I never would come up with this. Without... Yeah. yeah. I, I read that too. Uh, but actually um... – Reading the Wikipedia page, like somebody, somebody wrote a very detailed synopsis of uh, Pogue's original draft on Wikipedia that I had never read before, and I always knew that, yeah, Pogue had written the original script and then Cronenberg like massively rewrote it. But even years ago, I, I remember reading like you know Cronenberg on Cronenberg, and he's crediting Pogue in in that, saying like you know, not not patting himself on the back for letting him keep credit but just saying like you know yeah Pogue was the guy who had the spin on it that it should be about a gradual transformation not just he steps out of the telepod and he's a half man half fly thing and um well I mean we'll get to this but I don't know that's (laughs) um that should be like our catchphrase on Alan Smithy we'll get we'll get to this like comparing the the sequel to come but um he it's great that he doesn't he's not a full on monster until literally the last few minutes of the movie like he's he he has dialogue even though he's under a ton of makeup and the makeup the, the kind of makeup that he winds up being caked under Jeff Goldblum really sort of resembles like altered states but even in altered states like when John Hurt is turning into that mutant beast thing like he's just a monster at that point but yeah no the great thing about this is how Jeff Goldblum gets to describe what's happening to him all the way all the way up until the end all the way up until literally the last few minutes uh you know he's capable of uh you know being uh expressive and describing his condition and stuff And and it's so much more effective like you know for him to be telling gina davis like you know i'm gonna put you in the telepod and then we're all gonna be fused together you and me and the baby and it's like oh god that's horrific yeah and then yeah so Especially since when he starts turning. You get to hear him go insane. (laughs) Like it's so much, it's so much more than if he was just deteriorating and turning into a monster. It's like, you get to hear his thought process deteriorating and Jeff Goldblum, you know, as we, as we've come to know him is quite, quite the master of the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, 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 stammer, uh, stream of consciousness, uh, (laughs) sort of style of talking and this is what of course uh spielberg uh, put him in um jurassic park for so you know and it's and it's like an 86 i mean, like what he'd done like earth girls are easy and and transylvania six five thousand i mean you know there's he wasn't like a proven star or anything at this point he's never really been a star but this was kind of the this was the movie that made him a star this obviously was, yeah, this was the movie that made him a star and so what yeah the whole thing with him going crazy though is that 
the viewer, the one of the really cool things is, is how Cronenberg is able to keep you sort of guessing, not exactly where it's going to go next, but sort of because it's it's in it's in scenes. I can see why it would work really well as a stage play because it's in these long scenes. So he becomes the fly because he gets drunk and is an idiot. Uh, And then Gina Davis shows. So Gina Davis has to go deal with the ex-boyfriend who's played by John Gatz from blood simple. um, Who's, who's this smarmy bastard with a heart of gold or a smarmy. Yeah, pretty much. It's, there's yeah, some, he saves he, he saves, saves the day yeah. in the end. <laughs> so, but the whole scene it, it goes. It's a very long sequence for, and it's just so strange to see this. Like that, Fox okayed this in 1986. They were like, "Oh yeah, this is going to be a great idea," and it's from Brooks Films. So I'm assuming they. I don't know if they distributed it through Fox, and they they picked up most of the bill, but. It's just such a strange structure for a movie that you you have sort of a extended montage of the romance and the professional aspect of it too because Gina Davis is going to document the creation of the teleportation device um and then it there's the it's got to be about a 15 minute sequence where Jeff Goldblum in her fight, he gets jealous after she leaves. He turns into the fly. Then she comes back, and they find out that he's got some some superpowers going on. And that's when he knocks her up with the mutant baby, um, which is not actually, if you watch the first one, you don't know for sure it's going to be a mutant baby. Um, and then you get into the sort of montages of how, how he progresses and the sort of insanity of it, like the um, the bathroom cabinet with his fallen off body parts. And I think that's the great thing is, is that Jeff Goldblum is rationalizing. He's still, even though he's in all this makeup, he's yeah. still rationalizing it. He's, he's like, sort of, oh, he's, he's, he's not so, he's not really scared of what's happening to himself. He's more interested by it than anything. And then after a short, you know, he goes through a little fear, but mostly interest, and then he embraces it, which is even creepier. You know, the, those great lines about, you know, I'm a man who dreamt, or I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it, but now the dream is over, the insect is awake. You know, that's the kind of stuff, that that's really Cronenberg writing right there. Like, have you ever seen Videodrome? Not all of it. Okay. Well, I mean, there's a lot of, Videodrome is my favorite Cronenberg movie, and, um, and my favorite Cronenberg-esque movie, and the lines in The Fly where Goldblum's going on about the flesh, that's yeah, the straight flesh. Out. I do. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's, stri- that's straight out of the Videodrome uh, playbook there. Yeah, that that is an awkward sequence, and yeah, I hate to say it, but we'll have to get to it, but when they try to recreate it for the next one, it's amazing. Um, and then the end... When he comes- the end, which is, yeah, which is kind of like pulling you in these different directions, because like we said, it's like the asshole boyfriend ends, up, or the asshole Gina Davis's asshole ex ex boyfriend winds up the hero, 
And so you're sort of like, you know, reluctantly forced to root for him once you realize that there's no going back for, for Goldblum. Like, it's just not, no matter what, it's just not going to end well. But in some ways, when, even when, okay, so the big, I, for me, the big, the big moment was when the big horror movie moment, the thing that I should have been expecting, but wasn't was when his face fell apart and revealed the fly underneath. Um, yeah, where it, where it's because until (laughs) he he finally becomes like, you know, a full on puppet, like the queen alien basically. Right. And until that moment, um, there's always like this possibility that somehow it's going to be okay. Um, Right, because he's still got a face. <laughs> he's still got a human face. But right, then the monster head breaks out from underneath, and then you're finally at that point like where you were in the 1950s fly, where it's just full-on monster head. Right, and it's just it's too much at that point. So, yeah. um, And that's really close to the end. That's probably within the last six minutes. I mean, right, right. Because he drags her into the teleporter. He's going to try to send him through, and then the boyfriend, the ex, uh, shoots the wires, and then he gets fused with the uh, with the machine. Yeah, and then um, there's the really amazing ending. It's just... Uh, it. I can't imagine it with more than three people, even though I've sort of seen that now. Um and how Cronenberg knew to boil it down to this. It, it's just so very different. It's almost yeah. like Cronenberg's approach was, I'm going to do a movie about a guy who create a, a, a reclusive scientist who's able to create a teleportation device. And the science in this thing falls apart really fast. So it, it's, it's good well, that it's so it's not, good. <laughs> it's, it's, a good thing. It's, it's a good thing somebody else made another movie about teleportations and flies to show how how much more ridiculous the science could right. get. But, but yeah, we're almost, Cronenberg we're almost there. never lets you concentrate on the science. Like I... <laughs> I didn't until it was over. Well, I didn't go. Oh yeah, that was really not. That doesn't work. But well, actually, on on that note, um, this movie does something that all movies, like <sighs> countless movies, have done, like to the point where it's just a cliche now. But I think I feel like The Fly is the only movie that actually does it correctly, and that's using text on a computer screen to convey dramatic moments and or exposition. Like, I think, again, I think it's like the Howard Shore music that makes it work, but there, there's some crucial scenes in this movie where it's just Jeff Goldblum reading his computer and typing into it that's letting you know what's happening. Right. He's asking it, you know, well, what happened? Did I assimilate the fly? And then it's like, no, you know, fusion. And... Somehow the music and the pacing, it just – and however long the camera lingers on the words to let you read it, it actually works. And it's like there's so many movies where like people on computers is supposed to be suspenseful or engaging and it's and it's not. You know, it's like it's like The Net with Sandra Bullock or, or it's The Lawnmower Man or something. But The Fly actually does it right. Yeah. And it- – it's because I, I think it's because the computer almost gets a personality. It's that eighties, it's that eighties computer thing where you can it. 
people didn't have them, so you'd be like, no, yeah. you have a computer. It's like having how but it this, really is. But this one, but this, but the computer in the fly somehow doesn't seem as like in retrospect as like ridiculously magical as um, like the computer in war games or or the computer in the thing. Like, because what I think of comparing the fly to is the scene in the thing where Wilford Brimley is being told by his computer that, you know, what the thing is and how it's going to assimilate everything. And it's such like, you know, with all respect to Carpenter, it's such a, it's kind of a slow, dull scene. And it's so slow and dull that like actually in the TV version of the thing, they add a voiceover so that the computer is saying what it's typing out to Wilford Brimley. I didn't know that. Wow. Really? It, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty corny because otherwise the the scene is just Wilford Brimley looking at his computer. But somehow with the fly, Jeff Goldblum looking at his computer is not dull. Again, I think it's you know Howard Shore music goes a long way. Yeah, and it's a different sort of intensity. Oh, and it, and it, and it factors and it factors a lot into the into the conclusion. Like you know, it's kind of telegraphing the big moments, like you know, letting you know that. Brundle fly has just been fused with the telepod. Like it, you're actually told that by the computer before you see it. You know the horrible uh, conglomerate of the two fall out of the telepod. Right. And it's the and it and it makes it just a little bit more. Uh, I don't know. It just adds to the to the poetry of the whole finale. Especially in that scene, because in the trivia i had read that they'd cut the scene where he 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 plays with fusing his cat and the other monkey um and i th- that i i guess they they did that because it made he had to kill it and it made him too unsympathetic they said which again will will show you that it's for a female they they were right as opposed to guys who would have cared less. Um, but the that made the scene at the end when the computer's telling you, it, it, it gave you a second to imagine what this is now going to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It lets you dread it a little. Yeah, and that's really cool. Um, Howard Shore music, great photography. Um Oh, and I guess speaking of like fusions and stuff, do you want to talk about how gory this movie is for a second? Okay, um, I, I didn't actually <laughs> think it was that gory, but all right. I mean, it's. I mean, I think it's it's gorier than Aliens uh, for sure. I mean, Aliens has a lot of slimy, you know, xenomorphs in it, true. but as far as like eviscerations and stuff, I mean, the worst the worst you get is uh, Bishop being torn up, and and he's an android. Or the chestburster, you know, redux, but that's just that. Um, yeah, the fly is all about like this, you know, graphic decomposition and really intimately icky ideas, like your fingernails coming off or yeah. your or or your ear coming off. You know, basically like you know a science fiction version of of leprosy happening. Oh. Or is I know it's it's. it's it, his it's incredible. Off, you know? I mean, <laughs> and ugh. puking up the. Uh, <laughs> when I was telling my friend I was rewatching this, he said, "I always laugh at the scene where he just vomits for no reason." <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah, it is kind of funny in a way." 
<laughs> it's like grosser but, to talk about it almost than to watch it in a weird way. Yeah, but um, that, but that's but that just kind of makes it the more incredible that this was like such a mainstream hit in '86 and and a popular movie with women when it's got so much uh, nasty decomposition in it. And, and I, uh, oh yeah, well the Inside Out baboon, the failed uh, teleportation. The, yeah, the failed teleportation, and the, the special effects are great. I'm not I'm not saying that there was any failure on Chris Wall's part for me not getting sick. Didn't they, wasn't this one of those ones where people got sick at the movies or something? Probably. Uh, it's hard to imagine they didn't because <laughs> this is really, if you're seeing this stuff for the first time in 35 millimeter, I mean, this is, you know, I, I can imagine a few people getting upset stomachs. One of uh, it's the cr- things it's pronounced, it's pronounced I, Chris, Way- Chris Wayless, by the Wayless, way. I hate to correct okay. Yeah. It's okay. We'll creator of the gremlins design yeah, designer of the gremlins and the original gremlins we'll be talking a lot about that in a second but uh i think um the thing that creeped me out the most was how comfortable she was touching him that is creepy <laughs> isn't it like you're just like he's a slimy monster man and you're just like oh i'll just touch you it's fine and i'm just like that's so gross yeah i guess <laughs> Clearly, female audiences responded to the idea that you know women women's natural empathy would just make them so understanding that they wouldn't mind it so much. And maybe Gina Davis would magically do something to make him hot again. Yeah, I mean, like she'd she'd kiss him and he'd you know heal, he'd be all right. Yeah, but no, he he wasn't. Um... You know, like um, like Freddy's Revenge. Where she kisses him and he turns back, turns back into Mark Patton. <laughs> Anyways, um, this is the most I think we've ever done references to movies we've watched before for the podcast. It's, it's possible. <laughs> it's all, it's all, it's all supernovaing at this point. It's all collapsing in on itself. Uh, what else to talk about? I mean, it's almost hard to talk about it because it is so. It is separated out into into lengthy scenes and then so there's the whole abortion sequence there's the dream sequence which is gross but uh, for me i was like if this is too obvious you guys are the dream sequence for me was too obvious yeah, it was so good that they use it to open. They use it to liter- they literalize it into the opening of the fly too. <laughs> yeah, but with a fake just... with a fake Gina Davis. Oh. I guess they invited her back, and she there's conflicting yeah. reports. Apparently, she was like, "Wait, you want me back just to kill me in the opening scene?" No, it's it's kind of like they maybe Katie Holmes didn't come back for Batman because you know. Yeah. You're going to blow me up. Um, yeah, so. Well, I don't know. I mean, this movie's had a lot said about it already, being as popular and mainstream and influential as it is. But I guess one one thing maybe just to mention in, in terms of, you know, the context the movie was made and the fact that it's Brooks Films. I was, I, I was surprised to see that Brooks Films has not actually produced that many other movies and pretty much all of them have been comedies with the exceptions of this and um Elephant Man right which perhaps not so coincidentally is this other um heavy makeup performance role 
what Mel Brooks just really likes that kind of thing, I guess. But then, but, but you hear, but you know, there's like the same trivia on IMDb for the fly as there is for elephant man, where it's like, you know, Mel Brooks was concerned that people, <laughs> people might think that Mel Brooks presents the elephant man, uh, or Mel Brooks presents the fly was a comedy. And, uh, you know, it's understandable. You'd think after maybe the elephant man, he'd, uh, you know, get a pass on the fly, but I did like, I, I never knew this before, but uh, according to IMDb, he, when, <laughs> when the fly came out, he decided to embrace it a little bit and, and, uh, went around, uh, with a insect antenna or handing out insect antenna at the premiere or something. So that's pretty cool. Um, one thing I know good for him, good for him. <laughs> one thing is you kind of touched on it. The legacy of the fly is, we kind of talked about it um, when we talked about the Blobs, you know, Beware the Blob and uh, and the Blob remake because this preceded the Blob remake. And then there was one other like classic 50s monster movie that got a 80s remake that I can't remember now. Well, but, it kind of started with the thing. Even though oh, it yeah, was yeah. 40s and then um, the fly, the blob. Yeah. All right. Well, but – I guess he definitely wouldn't have the blob if not for this, because this was only two years before. And so, I mean, the immediate legacy is that, and we mentioned earlier that there were big double-disc um, special edition DVDs. Yeah, DVDs. That probably came out pretty early on when um, Fox was, you know, mining its catalog, and everything right. was double-disc. So, I mean, this is... They probably came out at least 12 years ago, maybe longer. I mean, it's been a long time since those uh, DVDs. It was around, like, I think it was, like, 05, you think it was, 06. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, and actually, like, the coolest thing about that was seeing the deleted scenes, like the, you know, the aforementioned um, monkey-cat uh, hybrid. But more than that, uh, the weird, like, happy endings that they tried to create – where Gina Davis dreams about, uh, or Gina Davis is pregnant, or there's a version where she isn't pregnant, but she's in bed with uh, Stathis, the ex-boyfriend, and you know maybe it's Seth's baby, or maybe it's more clear that it's Stathis's baby. But then she has a dream of a of a baby butterfly, and it's stop motion, um, and it's it's worth renting the DVD or getting it just to see this. Like it's so odd. Like her, she she dreams of a baby of a human baby basically with butterfly wings and it's claymation and it just looks so not right to the rest of the movie that it would have thrown <laughs> you completely completely out of it in the final minutes so it's a good thing that they just ended it where they ended it yeah it has one of the the, the cut is just great for the ending um yeah and Oddly enough, Fox is not like mining this for a remake. Michael Bay never. Got I think. A hold of I think it. they attempt. I think they attempted to like yeah. in the two, in the two thousands, and it didn't happen. And they'll get around to it. You know, it's only a matter of time. Um, but I guess the more. I guess it was more surprising that such a you know a a, a sort of prestigious breakthrough mainstream uh, sci fi horror movie like this would have a direct sequel. Um, and I guess that's what it's time to talk about now. Oh, okay. I've been I've actually been looking forward to talking about this because 
Me too. I, I have never talked to. I've never talked about the fly two with anybody in my entire life. No, this is going to be great. Yeah, I don't know that anybody is going to be able to is going to believe this until we start talking about it. Okay, so we'll take a, a quick respite and then uh, we'll be right back to talk about the fly numero two o. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Hey, Nolan, look what everybody is saying about the lair of the unwanted. I know. Jess and Rachel at Real Insights said, The Lair is our number one favorite podcast. Yeah. And Nick Job of Demented Podcast said, I look forward to every episode of The Lair. You know, Dylan Fields of the Lambcast says, I'm planning to get a layer of the unwanted tattoo across my face. I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Mad Hatter of Cast said, I fucking love this podcast. I would die for it. Yeah, Scott and Whitney at Frankly My Dear said, We got married thanks to Layer of the Unwanted. Kai of the Milfcast said, Dude, I'm speechless. Check out the almost Lammy-nominated podcast about the best of the worst movies that's out there. Come see what the fuss is all about. Check out The Lair of the Unwanted on iTunes. Right. Okay. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start our discussion with a, a little historical anecdote that at the point when The Fly 2 came out on video, which I think was probably 90, uh, there was a chain of supermarket slash drugstore megastores I guess I can't remember but it was called Farmore and they had really cheap video rentals it was before Blockbuster and so I used to rent a lot of stuff and every single Fox video had a preview for the Fly 2 on it and it was that that same preview <laughs> they used in the theater where it was just the heart monitor and then screaming um yeah so I kind of went into this with some preconceived notions because not just because of that, but because, you know, it's Eric Stoltz is in this. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, the uh, same, the same year Michael J. Fox was doing back to the future too. This is what he was doing. So, okay. Uh, yeah. My first awareness of the fly too, I think was, because the sci-fi channel showed it a lot. So I don't know if I saw bits and pieces of it before I saw The Fly 1. It's possible. But it is just one of those things. It's like, you know, Revenge of the Nerds 2 doesn't cost as much to broadcast as Revenge of the Nerds 1. So Comedy Central showed that one a lot more. Um, And I would always see the ending scene of, um, you know, the bad guy trudging out as this horrible mutant blob and eating from his sugar dish. And that was really nasty stuff to show even on basic uh, cable. But that was 90s basic cable for you. Anyways, um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> this is the first time I've ever watched it from start to finish. And, you know, he... Eric Stoltz. Um <laughs> He sucks, okay? Eric Stoltz really sucks, and when he tries to do Jeff Goldblum impersonations in the movie, it's even worse. 
Yeah. Um, I think that some, and, and because it is a '90s movie and or an '80s movie, there's a cute kid in it for a second, and in this case, <laughs> the the cute kid is a lot better than Eric Stoltz turns out. Yeah, to be. isn't he? Even yeah. though he has a bunch of stupid gadgets that he does crap with, I I was hoping that I was wrong. You. Yeah, so he'd well, have an adventure, and Eric Stoltz wouldn't come in until much, much later. Yeah, I guess let's let's explain the premise for the benefit of people who haven't seen it. Um, okay, Gina Davis decided to keep the pregnancy, and she also decided to turn Wait. into a different actress. Wait, hold and- on. There's the evil corporation that had no point in the first movie is now a very big part in here. So, and yeah, it's unclear if they kidnapped Gina Davis. I mean, who knows? Right. But yeah, so she's having the baby. There's some stuff that's really kind of glossed over, but like literally within the first, the very first scene of the movie is somebody who's, I wasn't even sure if it was supposed to be Gina Davis because it's not Gina Davis anymore, but you know, she's having the baby and, um, um, and it comes out as a big maggot, and she's horrified, and she dies. And that's like a really down note to begin on mm-hmm. because, you know, in the first movie, that was a nightmare. So now, like, literally, she's living the nightmare that she had. And then it turns out that inside the maggot was a cute little normal-looking human baby. So, oh, you know, it's okay. I wish she had lived long enough to see that, at least. Um, and then the only returning actor from the first one, John Getz, says Stathis um, is like yelling to these evil ominous corporate scientists going like, you know, you promised me it wouldn't be like this. And 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 like as soon as we see that the, it's the human baby inside the, the, the big maggot, um, the credits start. <laughs> and then when the credits are over, you don't see John Getz for another 40, 50 minutes. And that, I think that was a huge mistake. I mean, if they were going to show the birth of, you know, Seth Brundle's kid, maybe they should have waited until much later in flashback. I mean, they, I think they could have opened with, you know, this kid growing up in a research laboratory, and you would have, you would have gotten the idea that right. okay, you could have, you could have messed with us that it was somehow, somehow related to the experiments, but maybe not necessarily the kid. Yeah, but they should. They, it, it op- but it's so pain. It's so painfully literal to have it <laughs> opening with with uh, you know the actual moment of birth, and um, which really does tie into going. Hey, this is a movie for the fans of the first one, and it's not not at all. No, it's that's the weird thing. It's like right, right, because especially you know thinking about. The Fly One is like a women's film. This is like, yeah, I don't think anybody was taking their girlfriends to this. You know, I don't think they could get them to go knowing that neither Gina Davis nor Jeff Goldblum were in this one. Um, I guess that's why they cast Eric Stoltz. They thought maybe they could get some ladies in there that way. But then apparently they, it was going to be Vincent D'Onofrio before that, which would have been way more interesting. Yeah, and – I wonder, was the Eric Stoltz thing, he was never really a member of the Brat Pack, but he was like the Brat Pack 2. Were they trying yeah. to, to appeal to that? Because I think, yeah. It, 
Okay, so it has a lot sure, of screenwriters. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure the thinking behind it being Eric Stoltz didn't go any further than you know he was Mask. He was Rocky Dennis and Mask. <laughs> he's used oh, to acting. Wow. He's used, he's used <laughs> to act. He's used to acting under heavy makeup. Let's let's you know, and he's cheap. Let's use him. <laughs> and he's cheap. Um. Yeah. So. There are a lot of screenwriters on this, and they're all well known. <laughs> they're they're <laughs> all well known. It's, I, I, um, did, I did not know that Mick Garris uh, came up with the with the cockamamie story. With the for terrible this. story, and then the Jim and John Wheat who did. Uh, they're the they're the screenwriting brother team who brought us Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master. Are they? I think they're also the ones who brought us Ewok Adventure one or two. Oh yeah. Um, no, they, They've just worked on a lot of crap. Most recently, um, Chronic, you know, Riddick and uh, or, or well, Pitch Black was there. So okay, they didn't do the later Riddicks, but okay. you know, you know what else they've did? This just keeps tying back to previous Alan Smithies. Frigging Birds Two, Lands End, and Alan Smith film. So these guys have just written some some garbage, and uh, I'm guessing they're the ones who had Stathis say that in in, refer- in reference to to Brundle that he bugged me. I'm I'm just guessing that was their line. And then of course, Frank Darabont tying into the blobs. Frank, Frank freaking Darabont was on this. Yeah. So I guess you have, what you have is really well-written garbage. Um, mostly, but a lot of the problem with it is, and, um, you're going to, how do you, how do you say his name again? Stathis? No, Chris Wallis. Wallis. So they they basically managed to find a director who has less personality than I I couldn't even think. Like I can't think of a director who has so little personality as this guy. Um Yeah. And and worse, the funny I assume he got it because he did the special effects for this. He did the special effects for the first yeah, they had one. an they had an Academy Award winning director on this movie. There you go. <laughs> it was and just that it was an Academy Award for special effects. He um he can't direct the actors, and so it's not like somebody. It's not like the producers like, well, let's get you really sturdy actors, so you don't have to worry about directing them. No, they went and got them. Some of these people, you're just kind of like, I didn't realize you weren't. I didn't realize you had a you'd ever had a job before, and well, and they open with that woman who's just terrible, the evil lady doctor. Oh, she's bad. Yeah, uh, Anne Marie Lee. This was her first oh. movie. There's also there's there's also the really bad. Oh, were you going to say of L.A. Law? <laughs> was she on L.A. Law? Yeah, um, but then also also really bad. All the villains are really bad. Um, the one of, like the the head of security. Oh, he's is terrible. This, yeah, oh. is this the? This movie is a little bit of ahead of its time because I think it was in the '90s that you started having like the cliche of evil corporations with their own commando task force. Yeah, I mean, the- I mean, you don't you don't even have you don't even have that in Aliens where the company is the villain is the villain. I mean, you've, you know, Paul Reiser is you know this traitorous weasel, but you know they don't have their own crack force of commandos like you know the evil corporation does in the fly too except there it's a crack force of commandos run by a guy who's who's very clearly out of shape 
and he's like <laughs> bossing people around and you're just like this guy's a clown like why would you yeah so yeah. and then the big villain um i don't know he's not as bad as some of the other villains and then then there's the um the sidekick scientist the guy who yeah, he lives through. He's not quite he's, as bad. He's occasionally sympathetic, and I'm wondering if they. He kind of looks like David Cronenberg, and I'm wondering if they were <laughs> like, maybe yeah. we get David Cronenberg to be in the movie, and he was like, "Fuck no, I won't be in your movie." Um, yeah, it's just Daphne Zuniga is the. It, she's just she's not yeah. as bad as Eric Stoltz, but she's not any good. And Mel Brooks wanted her cast based on Spaceballs, where she's. Yeah. Because uh, she was the princess in Spaceballs. Ah, what a good so idea! Why not put her in uh, in the fly too? You get you gotta get you gotta get somebody. Um, just to talk about the you know, um, I guess the concept, but also okay, you know, you said like a young his name it's Martin Mar- Martin Brundle is the name of mm-hmm. Seth Brundle's kid who's never known his father. Um, He's like not that bad, and it's a hard role to play because this is like a genius super baby that grows to a Eric Stoltz manhood in five years, and it's not like that's not an interesting idea, but Eric Stoltz doesn't play it that way at all, and he's not written that way at all. No. He's Eric Stoltz is written, and he plays it like he's just a guy who a, a slightly eccentric guy who got hired by the evil corporation. Not, not like, not like something that is only five years old, but is a genius and looks and you know has grown to full adult maturity during that time, and has never known any life outside of like this lab that he was raised in. Um, he should be playing it like you know twenty times as autistically as as he is, but he's just kind of playing it like a normal guy, and he's written just kind of like a guy. Yep. And they never and they never address basic questions that could have made the story interesting. Like, does he know that there's a world outside of the you know corporation? He's clearly never left, and like, what are his feelings towards girls? Because his you know attraction to Daphne Zuniga is is not written out of the ordinary at all. So I don't think, I don't think it's so much that the story was awful. It's just like, it, it doesn't, it doesn't answer the basic questions that it raises because it's in such a, it's so preoccupied with like repeating stuff from the fly one, like, cause they try to recreate the, you know, the romance between uh, Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum in the original, but you can't. The circumstances and the story and everything is completely different. So it's just awkward when they try to do it in this one. Yeah, and what is it? The hmm. he has the whole relationship with the evil um, science guy. It's never clear too much of it is it it doesn't seem like a movie that would have gotten a theatrical release, certainly yeah. not from a major studio, and I know that they i i I think Fox you know really did not give this one a very big release, but even so. 
regardless of the quality of the special effects. Which aren't even that good, incidentally. I mean, at least not. It's because they're not. It's, I guess, know, I guess it's just the. Di- it, I think it's the shark. I think it's Jaws again. Like they, they show you too much, and and you can okay. tell that they're trying not to show you too much, but they still are showing you way too much. And then there's the whole thing that a guy in a gigantic um, fly costume that looks like a super gremlin isn't, and he's nice though. He's nice to dogs and to his yeah. girlfriend, and. Well, like- he- yeah, yeah. <laughs> it does. By the way, the yeah, the the redesigned fly for the fly two does look. Its head does very much resemble a gremlin's head, and that's that's the Chris Wallace uh, touch there. But um, there's not. Yeah, for I mean, you know, considering that they the director is just the special effects guy from the first one, there's not really too much. I mean, Eric Stoltz doesn't start full on turning into a fly until right about the halfway point. Um, I guess the big, the the most, the special effects before that are, well, I guess they decided that seeing the baboon turned inside out was one of the most memorable. And one of the things that really put the original over the top. So you've got a dog being turned inside out. And and if the IMDB uh, message boards are any indication, that seems to be what most people remember from the fly too is, how sad they felt for the dog that got turned inside out. And that becomes like a plot. It becomes a plot point because, you know, Eric Stoltz, you know, starts to realize that these are bad guys because they said that they put that inside out dog out of, out of its misery, but they really didn't. They kept it as a specimen. And it it looks like a, it looks like something out of the never ending story too. Um, Chris Wayless doesn't, not do um puppets well like furry puppets that was a painful scene um it's 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 right after Daphne Zuninga takes a 5-year-old to a a drinking party at a business and it's there it's yeah, a it's research <laughs> park Bar- yeah, the evil, the evil corporation, uh, Bartok Industries, um, which, by the way, it was the name came from the first one. I'm guessing it was a reference to Bella Bartok or something. But I don't know. It, what's isn't isn't the evil corporation in Scanners Revok or something? No, Daryl Revok is the name of uh, the bad guy in Scanners, right? So I'm guessing that Cronenberg came up with the name Bartok. Anyways. It, but what Bartok does is very undefined. I mean, it's like they you'd, you'd think that developing a teleportation machine would be enough to keep these guys preoccupied, but they've also got the re- we don't we don't know what they do. They don't even they don't even throw in the most cliche, obvious catch-all explanation that Bartok is like you know developing mil military weapons or something. Right, yeah, it's not even they're just that. they're just they're just sort of an all purpose evil corporation that's keeping this, you know, weird mutant child and observing him just I don't know, just out of curiosity. But then but then they but then it's because they think that he can complete the telepods because they haven't been able to get them to work since uh since Seth Brundle died. And then and then they start talking about like, you know, we're going to keep you around so that we can 
we can, you know, do genetic engineering by studying you. We'll figure out how to answer. It's, it's, they never quite define it because I don't know. They're just trying to make them as hateable as possible in all ways so that you don't feel bad for any of these, you know, career scientists who, who were unlucky enough to be killed by mutant Eric Stoltz in the last 20 minutes. And in the last 20 minutes is when he, you know, as, as I was saying, like the, you know, uh, Jeff Goldblum doesn't turn on turn into a full on puppet monster until the last five minutes of the fly, but the fly two gives you about twenty minutes of giant puppet fly walking around, yeah. eating people, and and from the from the moment that he goes into the he starts hatching out of his cocoon um, at the start of that you know final twenty minutes of the movie. Suddenly, it's every aliens rip every alien rip off from like the previous ten years. <laughs> it's just one of those kinds of things. It's just you know exactly what to expect, right down to the you know commandos running around what looks like Pinewood, you know the the poor man's version of Pinewood Studios with you know smoke and and stuff and uh, industrial steps and guys pointing guns around corners looking for the monster and then it, it it's up on the ceiling and it grabs him so yeah you're into real cliche territory by the last 20 minutes of this thing and uh the only really impressive gore <laughs> is um uh what the fly does to people it melts a guy's face off horrifically who lives, who lives? and i was just like that's the dumbest thing i've ever seen because he would have died immediately from shock are you kidding and yeah and then you have and then you have a head crushing that is so gratuitous it almost like (laughs) it almost it almost knows it's gratuitous doesn't it (laughs) because it's like the elevator the a guy's head gets squashed by an elevator and they spend like five minutes setting it up. They, it's not, and it's the fly, you know, the Eric Stoltz fly doesn't even like throw him under there at the last second or even throw him under there to get crushed on purpose. It just kind of happens. And boy, does it happen. It's a great, it's a fantastic head, head splattering. It, it's a pretty incredible head splattering. It is. And it just has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> but neither does very much in the last 20 minutes and it has a happy ending it has a happy ending Um, oh that's well this is what i remember watching it on tv as a kid like that really disturbing i think i i think i always assumed it was a lot better than it was because that ending is so disturbing i thought wow the must the rest of the movie must be you know really creepy and just you know frightening if this is how it ends but it kind of it kind of jerks you both ways because yeah it has this attempt at a happy ending where you know okay first off you're into the moral ambiguity of it's not like it's not like Jeff Goldblum turning into the fly where clearly he's a good guy but the insect brain is taking over and I'll hurt you if you stay here and and he becomes he clearly becomes the villain um we're still supposed to see Eric Stoltz as the hero after he's become the monster. Cause the guy, when he's running around killing scientists and, and, you know, mercenaries or whatever they are at, at Bartok, um, industries, they're all the bad guys. 
and uh, Daphne Zanika's life might be in danger from these guys. So there's that. Oh, and it and it pets a dog. Yeah, it lets the calling, dog live because he likes call, dogs. Yeah, calling back to his you know well-established love for canines. Um, but then it grab you know. He grabs uh, he grabs Mr. Bartok and pulls him into the pod because – and this is where the science gets even iffier than the original. He figured out the cure from a deleted scene that was left over from the fly <laughs> that <laughs> he, <laughs> that um, he can get the – he can get the fly out of him by going through the telepod with uh, with a normal person, and that'll just shift the fly genes over to the normal to the other person. I think I think he does actually program it to do that in this one, which is pretty because uh, he's a he's a he's a genius. Ba- he's a he's a he's a, ba- he's a baby genius. He's a baby like, genius, Bob, Bob, and then. Bob. There's also the thing about the password, which I don't think any other movie's ever done, um, but they they almost should because it is interesting. <laughs> so he he locks his computer, and they're gonna they're gonna try and you know force breach it by doing a bunch of common words or something. And then there's this message that like, hey, on the first incorrect password, you know, we're gonna wipe the system. And it's just kind of like, can you imagine if? Your computer did that? Like, oh crap, I hit the wrong key. Like Well the reason I think the reason they have to do that is because the secret password that Eric Stoltz created for the computer was dad. And probably like the janitor at Bartok Industries could have guessed that, like, you know, oh hey, you know, he probably misses uh, this dad that he never knew. Maybe it's dad. <laughs> They probably could have gotten that on like the fourth or fifth try, oh. you know. Considering considering that the guy is fucking grown up in captivity his whole life, they should know him pretty well. Uh, and every by the way, how, moment how, of how, his how, life is videotaped. Yeah, yeah, they should know him. How, how I love, uh, I love, I love the scene where he trashes the apartment that he's been given because he feels betrayed that he <laughs> they. He's he's spent his entire life in captivity, and then he he's shocked shocked that his captors weren't actually letting him go completely unsupervised. But what would what would be what what's what's stupider if if they did or if they didn't? It's like again completely dis, completely disregarding all the dramatic possibilities of you know a five-year-old adult who's grown up in captivity. They also completely disregard the implications of uh, Daphne Zuniga having sex with a five-year-old boy. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, that could have that could have at least led to a funny scene where she realizes that he's only five years old, which I don't think she ever does. And then, okay, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about poor John Gatz, who's the only one in this movie who seems to get that... He's in a piece of shit. He's in a piece of shit, and he's cashing a check. And I just hope that he got a decent check from this, because I love John Gatz. I mean, yeah, oh, blood simple. He's this. He's such an awesome lead in that because he's so understated and just not at all uh, sort of the film noir. He is and isn't the perfect film noir protagonist, but he shows up, and it's it's a comic scene. Like it's yeah. a superhero scene. Like that's that's one of the weird things about this is that the Eric Stoltz's powers in this are, uh, I'm 
the fact that they didn't have him out fighting crime for ten minutes is shocking <laughs> to me. Um, his, his his he also starts turning into the fly a lot faster than. Yeah, oh, we cool. got we got to talk about that that scientist who was like, "I'm not worried that I'm in this room with a you know seven foot tall insect about to be born. I'm fine. It'll be cool. Insects don't eat, you know, other well, insects or things because they think." Because they think they they say they think it's going to take weeks before he hatches out. Turns out it's minutes. How convenient! But yeah, so John gets he's like go away, and they break into his house, and he's like, oh, I guess you're not going to go away, are you? Okay, come in. Or something. it's just any 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 start any and but then he's but then he's it's it's like a fun scene because he starts getting off all these good lines at Eric Stoltz's expense. Yeah, you know, he's, he's like. <laughs> Seth, Mar- Seth Brundle was my father. He's like, oh, the resemblance is uncanny. And uh, and then you know, the aforementioned he bugged me. <laughs> you know, he really didn't like. He's like, I don't like Seth. Or I think Daphne Zuniga is like, why can't you help him? His dad was your friend. He's like, he wasn't my friend. He stole my girlfriend and you know killed her and burned yeah, off exactly. my leg. Like, oh, uh, you're right. They say like, yeah, like, <laughs> you know, why don't you why don't you show some compassion? And he's like, last time I showed compassion, it cost me an arm and a leg, but I'm cha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, he kind of runs away with a movie. And he's only in it for five minutes. But he runs he, he runs away with it because he's literally the only person who came back from it from the first one. So you're like, oh, hey, yeah, hi, John. Um, one last. Oh, well, actually, the the scene that then follows, and you mentioned it earlier. I think you wanted to rag on it, and I want to let you is okay. when they're trying when they're trying to recreate, uh, you know, those all the tense, horrific scenes from the fly one where Jeff Goldblum is like picking himself apart and talking all crazy to Gina Davis. It's after the, it's after Daphne and Eric meet John Getz that they do that scene where they're staying at the motel. Right. And he like, he plucks out his eyeball and they've lowered his voice a few octaves on the soundtrack. And he's like, you know, I'm becoming better. Yeah, it's it's like a really half-hearted attempt to do all those scenes from the original in just one scene in this one. And she calls him in, and he gets taken away, and they put her in a pretty white dress because you know that's what evil corporations do when they kidnap people is they put them in pretty white dresses. Um, yeah, so. That scene is they're on the run and they don't go anywhere interesting. That the, the it's the worst kind of on the run scene. They go see Stathis and then they go to a motel and she freaks out and he yeah. freaks and they out. Do the, and they do the cliche of like the motel owner sees them on the news, but but like he literally does nothing. I don't get it. Is that supposed to be funny that he just doesn't care? Doesn't he want the re- doesn't he want the reward money that they're probably offering? So yeah, and then he runs and also on. how the hell and how the hell does the new why why did the evil corporation tell the news about this? They should be trying to keep the existence of Eric Stoltz under wraps, especially since they don't know what he looks like at that point. Yeah, and so he turns into the Fly Man, and then we find out that his legs have dis- his have cocooned up and. Well, and, you know, let's talk about the there, – there's one more thing about the ending that doesn't work. It's like, okay, you're, 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 
you're sympathetic for Eric Stoltz as the fly monster because he's killing the bad guys, even you know when it's like really awful, and um, and even you know, and they even show Daphne Zuniga being horrified by this stuff. But then he pulls uh, Mr. Bartok into the telepod to turn Bartok into the monster, and and it'll make him normal, and and Daphne Zuniga, you know, hits the trigger. It's like, you know, uh, so. If it had been anybody else other than Mr. Bartok, would she have hit the trigger or would she have done the right thing and been like, you know, no, I'm not going to let you turn somebody else into a monster just so that you can live because you just killed a bunch of people. I thought it was going to be the security guard. I thought it was going to be an entirely reprehensible um, guy who... I mean, Bartok's oh, an evil then, corporate guy, but I mean, he. But then, what? Well, yeah, but he's not that bad, right? Is that what you're mean, going? I'm this? going. He's not that bad. I mean, he's no worse than you know. He's not that bad. I think they almost realized that at the end, and and that's why he suddenly, you know, despite yelling at everybody not to kill Eric Stoltz, we're going to take him alive. He suddenly changes his mind, and it's like, now nah, you know what? No, screw you, Eric Stoltz. I'm going to blow your brains out here. And now, wouldn't a giant fly be bulletproof? I'm just thinking, like, if you, uh, uh, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Um. Well, it wasn't shotgun proof at the end of the first one. That's but, true. But no, it oh, was a then, different kind of fly at the end of the first one. The first one, it looked a lot more. Oh yeah, it was Brundle fly, and this is just this fly giant. fly. It's it's <laughs> mohawk fly. with a fly. It's stripe. Yeah, it's stripe gremlin. fly. It's um, one of the hybrid gremlins. It's one of the hybrid gremlins from Gremlins like. Two. <laughs> it looks like it looks like a hybrid gremlin from Gremlins Two, directed by someone who doesn't know how to shoot special effects. Just make them. Um, it looks like a very. It looks like a sci-fi channel original movie from, but not, but not as we know them now. Like one of the mid '90s ones, early right. to mid '90s it's ones. It's one of the pre-CG ones, but somehow they had a bunch. It's like. Uh, what was it? Ted Rex. That would be Theodore called. Rex. Theodore Rex. Yeah. It's um, like Carnosaur. I don't. It's just. <laughs> it's very Carnosaur. It actually is kind that, of Carnosaur. It's so car, dude. It's so Carnosaur. They should have oh. sued. Um. I and I I keep trying to get to this, and this is almost my last point that okay. I could possibly make on the fly <laughs> too. Um. I feel bad for Mr. Bartok uh, at the very end. You know. I think I felt bad for him even as a kid, even without having seen the whole movie, because that's just like a fate worse than death to be a, turned into a huge lump of pus and have to, you know, take your meals from a from a sugar tray. Well, so I don't even if it had been like the asshole head of security or anybody in the fly too, I would. Yeah, it's would, really mean spirit. Like, you know what? Yeah, it's really mean spirited. And I would have just been like, you know, uh, maybe maybe Eric Stoltz should have just you know been put out of his misery, and you know they they could have really emulated the first movie by having the last shot be Daphne Zuniga on her knees crying. But they try to go. They try to go. For, it's weird because they try. They have a contrived happy ending that also has a little disturbing twist at the end. Well, and the other thing is, why aren't the security guards still blasting away at Eric Stoltz when he's crawling out of the teleportation pod? I mean, so what if he turned they, into a human? He's still a bad guy. He still killed, like, seven people. Like, Yeah, how did, how did they get from there to 
well, I, you don't see where they go to. But there was there was a deleted scene, and you can see this on YouTube of like an alternate ending where I guess instead of showing Mister Bartok as a big lump of pus uh, in a cage, it would have gone to Stoltz and Daphne yeah. on the docks somewhere having you know some lunch and. She asks in a in a great exchange of dialogue. She asks him how he's doing, and he says he's much better. And then I guess the implication is like, oh, does he still have a little fly in him? Because he's saying he's you know better. So is he getting all flyy again? That is uh, one of the interesting ideas that was raised by it that never got answered was that in the first one. And I think this might even have come in in the line that they bring in from the first one um, in this in the second one is that uh, Jeff Goldblum thinks that the reason he feels better is because the tele the computer purifies his DNA. He doesn't think it's because of the fly. And they never explain what happens to the fly in the first one. Uh, either they say that it integrates, but no, because I remember during the teleportation that thing flies out of there. Why didn't they do that for the sequel? It'd be even better. Are you sure? I think it flies out of there. I, I, I don't. I don't. No, I, I so. don't. Oh. I don't think that's nah. Yeah, okay. I because I, I, I don't think it works. Otherwise, I think they both have to be in the pod yeah. for them to get integrated. So, yeah, I mean, the well. ending is just. Well, we didn't even have time. <laughs> I'm sorry, go on. No, it's just, it's mean-spirited and nasty, and it's kind of pointless. It's like, who would put him in the cage? The the corporation. They're carrying on his, you know, commitment to evil. But that he, all that of he, them were killed. It's one of, the founding principle, one of the founding principles of Bartok Industries is gratuitous evil for seemingly no profit motive. I mean, the dog, they weren't doing any tests on the dog. They just, like, kept it alive. No. It's just... It's they were just keep. They're just keeping it alive to be mean. That's what they do at Bartok. <laughs> Bartok, we're mean. <laughs> <sighs> oh, and we didn't even really have time to talk about Cronenberg's, uh, the idea for a sequel where the consciousness of Jeff Goldblum is in the computer and Gina Davis is trying to help him become flesh again. And then it takes over the security systems at Bartok and is killing off the evil staff that way. And I guess that's probably where we got the hell, the uh, the elevator head crushing uh, moment from. That was oh, probably. I didn't realize he prob- had an idea for a sequel. Wow. Um, so- yeah, and it, but the the weird thing about it is it's not really a, it, it it has nothing to do with flies. <laughs> well, and I mean it. It's, it makes sense that that's from Cronenberg since, you know, half of the first movie doesn't have anything to do with it. Uh, the, the fly transformation aspect. But one thing that did occur to me when I was watching it was there's the scene where Eric Stoltz scans himself into the computer. We'll call it the mm-hmm. nudie scene. The, um, why did he do that? I don't know. Uh, have we have we have we really been talking about the fly for two for thirty six minutes now? Yeah, which I think is more than anybody has ever done in history. Based yeah, on this, the movie, this is, 
This is a longer conversation than anyone ever even had about it coming out of the theater in no, yeah, in, no, in, in January or February of '89 or whenever, no, whenever they dumped this on on an unsuspecting public. They just came out of the theater and said, "Can we get our money back?" Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, um, tra- <laughs> I, I thought it was. Oh, man, I still have more to say about this. <laughs> uh, because the way this was advertised, apparently Chris Wallace like thought he had a classier movie on his hands than he did. Because according to IMDb, and I kind of want to get the Fly Two Special Edition now and listen to the commentary and stuff. Um, apparently, Chris Wallace didn't like that the tagline to this was like "father like son." He thought that was too cornball, and it's like, have you seen your movie, dude? That's exactly. <laughs> That's exactly the tagline this movie deserves. That's exactly that's exactly the level at which uh, this movie operates. <sighs> and then on YouTube, um, if you look for The Fly 2, there's a really cheesy – I mean the theatrical trailer for The Fly 2 is cheesy enough where you know they're playing like the sound of a, of a fly buzzing and the narrator's going like, can you hear that? It's getting closer. Don't be afraid. Be very afraid. Um <laughs> Which, by the way, is part became part of the pop culture vernacular from the Fly One. Be afraid, be very afraid. Much like you know, they're here from Poltergeist or something. Um, oh, but there's this even cheesier uh, TV spot where like this woman is singing "Hush, little baby." You have to see it. It's like "Hush, oh. little baby, don't be afraid." Even though your dad is the Fly, like it's not really that much better than what I just sung. <laughs> Oh, um, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll check that out even though... Oh, yeah, hush, hush, little baby, don't you cry, even though your dad was the fly. I think that's how it goes, for real. <sighs> I know, <laughs> it's, it's atrocious. So, I don't know, but they kind of knew what they had. They had, a, they, had a, they had a very splattery 80s toss-off <sighs> sequel on their hands, so... I guess it kind of found its audience. I don't know. Um, as much as it can find its audience. <laughs> it's for, it's, it's like for very, un, it's for very undiscriminating eighties horror aficionados and nobody else, I guess. Eric Stoltz fans, maybe. I mean, yeah. Stoltz, Stoltz maniacs. Yeah. There you go. Zuningites. Maybe some Zuningites. Um, uh, gets, gets, gets. Uh, yeah. poor, poor John Getz. I just, you know, <sighs> I'd like to hear his audio commentary. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully he's in the in- the retrospective interviews. I there's I want I'm not there's nothing I'd rather do right now more than watch the special features on the flight. <laughs> <sighs> okay, we're done. We can't. We can't. We could probably keep going. But we yeah. can't. We can't. It's got to stop. Um, okay. So, um, <laughs> hey, did you know that one of the goons in this movie was played by an actor named Rob Roy? That's kind of interesting. I saw that. Yeah. Okay. So, next episode of Alan Smithy podcast, uh, we're going to do a little comparative study on uh, two adaptations of Thomas Harris's Manhunter. First Roy Dragon. Oh, yeah, Red Dragon. Dragon. Ah, I got it wrong. Right. We're going to watch Manhunter, which was based on Red Dragon, and then we're going to watch Red Dragon, which was based on Manhunter. And no, I didn't didn't get mixed up there. It was pretty much based on 
on Manhunter. No, wait, it was based on Silence of the Lambs. What am I saying? <laughs> we're gonna watch. We're gonna watch Manhunter, which was based on Red Dragon, and then we're gonna watch Red Dragon, which was based on Silence of the Lambs. Yes, yeah. and uh, I what we'll figure out what version of Manhunter we're going to watch too, because that's, we'll talk about the confusion about that, but that'll be cool. I think that, is that going to be our first ever Michael Mann movie on the podcast? Yeah. Yeah. And our first ever Brett Ratner movie. You'd think we would have done a lot more of those by now. Um, Michael Mann. Do you think he got the job because his name is Mann, like Michael Mann Hunter? No, I, you know, I think he liked the book and he was looking for something he could do flashy. Have you ever seen it? Um, yeah, I don't know what version I saw, but I saw it years ago. I don't remember it at all, though. It's been so long. So it'll be like, it'll be like seeing it fresh. Yeah. So I haven't seen it in a while too. So we'll we'll track that down and figure it out. But yeah. All right. All right. So this is number. The next episode. One of our final episodes. One of the final. It's part of the final countdown here. And uh, we hope you'll join us. So uh, for an Alan Smithy podcast, this has been Matt. And this has been Andrew. And thanks for listening. Hush, little baby, don't be sad. You'll grow up to be like dad. Hush, little baby, don't you cry. Just because your dad was the fly. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Best of Alan Smithy Podcasts. This is Yuki Misiro. Good evening.